welcome to another episode of The Long Short. I'm your host, Drew Nickel. I'm really excited about today's conversation because we are finally able to provide an update to the fascinating episode that my co-host Tom did for episode 55, which revealed the US Securities and Exchange Commission's campaign to redefine what a securities dealer is by gaining a precedent in the courts. That episode laid out AMA's involvement in the cases of SEC versus Almagabi and SEC versus Belaznik, where we acted as amicus curiae. In these cases, there is a theme of the SEC going after relatively small-time or one-person trading shops and accusing them of being unlicensed securities dealers. However, these cases are but two chapters in a much wider narrative about what the US regulator is doing to extend its powers without using the much more traditional route of going to Congress. Beyond the importance of these cases for the individuals, some of whom have been bankrupted fighting the SEC, there is also the enormous impact that the rulings in favour of the US regulator will have on the wider industry, as it would mean that firms big or small that bought or sold securities would be considered securities dealers, which would therefore pull them under the umbrella of all sorts of additional regulations and costs. When we released the episode back in February, there were only a handful of cases that we are aware of, but we've since found that there are at least 10 out there of individuals being targeted by the SEC in various courts across the country. Today, we're going to focus on a new case of Kina versus the SEC, which is the latest case where we have submitted an amicus curiae. To give you all the details on what's going on, how this will impact the US asset management industry, I'm joined by two guests that have been following this trail of breadcrumbs left by the SEC for some time now. Gabrielle Gillette is a partner at the Upperlet practice at the law firm Jenner and Block, and he is with us alongside Suzanne Rose, AMA's senior advisor for government and regulatory affairs. You are both very welcome to the Long Short. Thanks for having us. Thank you. So, Suzanne, in my introduction there, I purposefully glossed over some of the definitions uh, of the terms. And although we covered some of this in episode 55, which I encourage everyone to listen to if they haven't, could you just briefly frame who Amicus Curie are and what an Amicus Brief is? Sure. Well, look, Amicus Curie or Amicus Curie, depending on how you say it, is Latin for friend of the court. And an amicus curiae is a person or persons who are not party to a case, but who have relevant interests in what's being considered in a case. They assist an appellate court by offering additional relevant information or arguments that should be considered when making their ruling. And courts, including the Supreme Court, have relied on amicus briefs and decisions. They can be very useful in shaping the law and strategically engaging on an issue for regulatory or legal benefits. Perfect. Thank you. And I, again, I will say again, if you want to go even further into some of the definitions that we will um, be using on this episode, please, please go back to episode 55 and then come straight back here afterwards. So why would AMA choose to be involved in any of the cases that we've talked about so far, but specifically Kina in this instance? And what is the role of AMA and law firms such as Jenner and Block in this process? Well, AMA, much like any amicus, um, is attempting to shape the law in a way that helps members. And as an advocate for its members, cases whose outcomes could have significant negative implications for the industry are likely to be of interest, particularly where the implications appear to be unintended consequences. 
For Ama, this process really began last year with the case against Ibrahim al-Magarbi, where the SEC is seeking to apply the same vastly expanded definition of who is a dealer. The al-Magarbi case, as you mentioned, was the subject of episode 55 of The Long Short. So in that case, Ama worked with Gibson Dunn to submit an amicus brief in al-Magarbi, which still is not final. And based on our involvement in al-Magarbi, the Keener case drew Ama's attention. Understand that there are more than 10 cases that we know of in various courts and at various stages, all seeking to redefine the dealer definition along the same premise. One was filed in Massachusetts several weeks ago. They, they just keep coming. <laughs> 10 and counting. So, Gobby, let's bring you in at this point. Could you just start by explaining your relationship to the Keener case and then just help us understand how this particular case came to be and where we are so far? Sure. Uh, so we, Jenner and Block, are counsel for AMA in the Keener case on appeal. And we came to be involved through some connections with AMA members who had been following this issue, as, as Suzanne mentioned. And they reached out to me and said, uh, you know, they knew my experience in securities cases, in uh, appellate briefing, appellate strategy, in amicus work, and thought it'd be a good fit. Another interesting angle here is that I was part of, uh, through some amicus briefs in the 11th Circuit, which is where the Keener case is right now. We had helped to create a circuit split on a disgorgement issue, uh, on an issue of what remedies the SEC can get for violations of the securities law. Uh, it was back when I was at Gibson Dunn, which you mentioned. Uh, I'm now at, at Jenner and Block after moving. But the point is that we had used this amicus strategy to try to create a decision from the court that then ultimately uh, created a change in the law that was very helpful. So Keener itself uh, is, is, I think, similar to a number of those other cases in that it is a, uh, a relatively small player, but a successful player, uh, who invests for himself, for his company, generally in convertible securities. And so... Uh, as the district court has found the facts, and let me step back for a second. In, in the American court system, uh, we have a few different levels. The first level in federal court is called the district court, is what I'll call it. Uh, that's the trial level. And so the facts get found by the trial court, and then the trial court will also apply the law. We're now in Keener, we're on appeal. So we're one level up challenging the district court's opinion. One level up from us is the United States Supreme Court, which uh, I think we'll get to later. But but anyway, Keener was uh, at the district court. The district court found that Keener had been trading for his own account, buying and selling securities for his own account, uh, and he had been doing so as a dealer, according to the SEC and the district court, because the convertible securities were a, a large portion of his business because he had advertised and solicited with issuers uh, in coming up with these convertible deals because he had converted the securities and then sold them at the earliest possible opportunity for a profit. Um, and I want to highlight those three issues in particular because you might notice none of those three things are relevant for the definition that I mentioned from the statute. The statute says you're a dealer when you buy and sell securities. It doesn't talk about do you advertise. It doesn't talk about do you sell securities at the earliest possible opportunity. It doesn't talk about whether they're convertible. So what makes Keener an interesting case, uh, like some of these others, is that the SEC is, is sort of advancing a definition of dealer 
that is new, that doesn't quite match up in our view with the statute uh, and is trying to change that definition. And I just want to pick up on, on something you said there, because you, you mentioned that, as with Al Mugabe, the SEC seems to be looking for these defendants that are, if nothing else, on the smaller side than what you would expect when you're talking about unlicensed securities dealers. So just very simply, why is that? What's the character profile here? Based on the cases we've seen, the character profile is... As you mentioned, it's a it's a relatively it's a smaller player whose business is predominantly convertible securities, uh, and, and we're talking about I think in Keener it was eighty five percent of the transactions were convertible, um, and and frankly defendants that have been successful that in in these cases, uh, the the company the SEC is going after has has made a profit in the convertibles business, um, and, and so I think that plays out there. In all of the case, I think in all of the cases, that sort of character profile rings true. It's the sort of person. You know, Drew, I would encourage you to consider the optics of the case. Um, a defendant may appear to be a more appealing adversary for several reasons, such as lack of industry prominence, which means not in the spotlight. Um, they're less likely to have robust legal representation, though some have good, strong, reputable lawyers. Also, consider their industry pedigree. These are not prominent players in the industry, at least from what we've seen thus far. Thank you. So, so I'm, I'm, if I'm understanding this correctly, there appears to be something of a, of a Goldilocks defendant that they're looking for here and that they're not a big citadel, but they're not a, uh, just a, you know, a, a real small-time player there. And, and you say there's, there's, there's something worth going after by the sounds of it, financially at least. Yeah, and one thing I think that's notable about that, when you call it Goldilocks, I think it's, it's pretty apt, um, is that you know we don't know exactly what the SEC is doing, but one theory here is that they're trying to use some of these less sympathetic defendants, some of these smaller defendants, to start creating precedent that then can be applied to bigger defendants industry-wide to more established players. Um, And I think to circle back to sort of where we started about the value of an amicus brief and AMA's involvement, that's precisely why these cases are useful to get engaged in at the early stages, because we can see, the industry can see how a decision in these cases might impact the industry, and perhaps the judge does not, unless somebody tells the judge. Perhaps the defendant focused on you know, their own business and defending themselves, as, as is understandable, they are less concerned or less think, not thinking as hard about how their case might impact others in the industry. And let's get, jump to that straight away, because I, I do think that's probably the, the question that's on all listeners' minds here is that with all these cases going through at various stages, some are in appeal, some, I believe, have only been filed in, in recent weeks, if that's correct, just just jump straight to the end. What happens if any or all or some of these cases are decided in the SEC's favour, despite all the very articulate points that uh, that you guys have put forward? And actually, just to add to that, when we think about the interplay of these cases, just as a complete layman, could you help me understand how this works in the sense of for the SEC to get this precedent that it, they may well be looking for, is it a case that they just need 
one case to go their way? Is it a case they need, you know, best of three? W- w- what is it? How does this all work? That is a, a more complicated question than you realize, but I think it's an important one for listeners to understand. Uh, so in the, the U.S. court system, we have a Supreme Court on top, and then we have 12 regional courts of appeals. They each cover a different jurisdiction, a different number of states. And the law in those jurisdictions is different. And so that's particularly relevant for us here because the SEC is not in a game of the uh, best out of three or you know, at the same time. This isn't a situation where a win in one place necessarily means a win in another. I think what the SEC is doing is bringing cases in these different, within these different regional circuits to try to change the law one by one, recognizing that they, they are technically independent, but they're all related as part of the federal, U.S. federal system. And so, for example, this Keener case and Alma Garvey both started in Florida federal court. They're now in the 11th circuit, which covers Georgia, Florida, and Alabama. If the SEC were to win, as a technical matter, its win is only applicable to companies that are operating in Alabama, Georgia, and Florida. As a practical matter, the SEC will take that win and bring it to, for example, uh, the Seventh Circuit, which covers Chicago, Wisconsin, or Illinois, Wisconsin, Indiana, and they'll tell courts there, hey, look what happened down in the 11th Circuit, you should do the same thing. The, uh, and you're right, the SEC is bringing cases, uh, you know, we saw another one, I think, last week or two weeks ago. They're bringing cases now in, I think there are five, diff- within five different uh, regional circuits. And one thing that could happen is, if you think about this as sort of a best of 12 game then, with our 12 regional circuits, whether they agree or disagree, I think there's a good chance that the U.S. Supreme Court will ultimately need to sort out any disagreements or any agreements, frankly, between those regional circuits. If the U.S. Supreme Court makes a decision, it is binding on all of the regional circuits. They have to follow that law. And so there's a universe where uh, I think AMA would get involved as it has in the 11th Circuit cases. Uh, you know, perhaps AMA will get involved in cases in other circuits trying to shape the law there and then trying to guide the case toward the Supreme Court to get what will be a, a final resolution to say, this is the law across the country, it is uniform, it is certain, it is uh, at least understandable in a way that folks can figure out how to comply with the law, whatever it is. So could I just flip that then before we move on and, and say, with these uh, at least 12 cases, 12 cases that we know of so far, if they are ultimately found in, I mean, I'm, I'm going to say our favor, just for simplicity, or in the defendant's favor, does that in turn uh, build momentum the other way to, to reinforce the existing definition? It sure does. And I think that's, uh, that's part of the long game here. That is that... Um, a win in one place for, for our side is not a win for all time, but, uh, you know, judges are people, which sometimes creates additional complexity, but, but also allows us um, 
to use the opinions of some just to try to persuade others. And uh, I think that's true on a personality level. It's true on a court level. Uh, and it's true sort of case by case as we go through and make our arguments that we're, uh, as counsel for AMA, recognizing that these cases are the beginning, not the end. And what we say here will have impacts in other cases uh, because the SEC is watching them as well. AMA is pleased to announce that AMA putting ESG into practice conference will be returning to London on the 7th of September 2023. Over the course of the day, discussions will address the basics of compliance, key regulatory developments, and the wider trends and themes that are guiding firms' approaches to responsible investment. The goal is to give attendees a set of practical insights that can immediately add value to their business. Panels, keynote speakers, and workshops will explore the practical aspects of ESG integration for alternative asset managers with a focus on regulatory developments affecting the industry. Interested in finding out more? Visit the AMA website to register now. And just to address the other uh, fairly obvious question here is that we've talked around this point of what the SEC is trying to do and why they are trying to do it. And in, in fairness to the SEC, that you know that then they're not there to to explain them or they're not here to explain themselves but have they given any clear indication that redefining the dealer rule or sorry a securities dealer i should say is their primary aim and and is it outlined anywhere that this is part of their uh strategy as a regulator unfortunately not i mean i think that it would be it would be wonderful for industry if the SEC would, would sort of put its cards on the table. Uh, I think because of the Goldilocks nature of the defendants, we are uh, we're forced to sort of meet the SEC where these cases are. Uh, sometimes they suggest that their reading of the definition of dealer is not as broad as they have said in other cases. Uh, I think that creates a challenge for us because I think in the SEC is frankly speaking out of both sides of its mouth. Uh, when you compare one case to another. Um, And and so I think we, as industry, I guess our view is um, to to prepare for the most extreme reading that the SEC has appeared to advocate, right? We want to, one of the things that we're trying to do in the courts is to explain why judges need to limit the SEC's definition, uh, redefinition, in a way that you know, even if they don't agree with us in terms of how narrow the definition is, it would be very useful and uh, and helpful to industry to at least limit that definition. So perhaps let the SEC expand it a little bit, but not a lot. And that's part of the, the sort of long game here is, is we don't know what their end game is. So we'll, we have to prepare um, for all of the different scenarios. Joe, just stepping back a little bit, aside from dealer, the stakes are huge here. Congressional authority is required for changing the definition of a dealer and modifying the Exchange Act in this way, and we don't believe the SEC has this authority. Now, if for some reason the courts were to grant the SEC this authority, it essentially would be absolute, wherein the SEC could determine who is or isn't a dealer at its discretion. 
it's highly unlikely that they'd require everyone who buys or sell and sells securities as part of a regular business to register, yet they'd all meet the new vastly expanded definition. So do we then take them on their good word that they're going to use this broad authority judiciously? This would set a precedent going forward that you just don't want to see with any regulator. Exactly. And, and that does seem to be the worrying point is is at every level here it's it's the precedent that you're setting it's not that there is anything particularly mischievous happening right up and in in front of us but it's about you know what could happen down the line and and Suzanne actually at this point I just wanted to you know make sure that, that listeners are aware of all the hard work that you have been doing because um we speak regularly and I think every time you have some new piece to add to the puzzle here in terms of uncovering cases that have been going on or or digging into just how far, how expansive this campaign seems to be, or again, apparent campaign seems to be. And, and, and not to sound too conspiratorial at this point, but, but I just wanted to ask you, how deep do you think this goes? You know, we, we, we've mentioned um, upwards of, or at least 12, but it, it could be more, and there are more coming all the time. So how many cases do we expect there to be? And, and, and sort of does the strategy just seem to be cast as wide a net as possible? I don't think it's safe to guess how many there would be. Um, but they do keep coming, as you mentioned. And, and as Gabby mentioned, there was one recently in the state of Massachusetts that's just several weeks old. Look, after almost 90 years, the SEC has determined that the dealer, that a dealer is a radically different definition than what went unnoticed until now. And this is not the only attempt to redefine core elements of financial markets. There are unrelated cases in circuit courts that have attempted to redefine and broaden the definition of who is a broker and what is an exchange. Um, so to answer your question, the truth is that no one really knows why, at least not yet. And just before we move on, I just wanted to make sure we've we've really clarified this point about how the SEC, the various ways the SEC can go about expanding its remit or defining rules, because this is in some ways very legitimate to go about getting a legal precedent, but it is certainly not the most common way that the SEC should approach um, redefining certain rules, because that would involve Congress. And it has, as far as I'm aware, at least so far, not gone that more, I'm going to use the word traditional route, but but maybe you'll correct me. But could one of you just help me and the listeners understand what the more usual routes for this kind of effort would be? Sure. Uh, you know, the, the ideal route is Congress. And there was a time when the U.S. Congress was uh, doing a lot of work and uh, passing legislation and, uh, you know, the... 30, the Securities Act was 1933, the Exchange Act was 34, there's an Investment Advisors Act and Investment Company Act in 1940. Uh, since then, Congress has not been particularly active, and so the more common route nowadays is through agency regulation. And what is interesting about these cases is that they differ from agency regulation even because they're going through the courts. In the, the traditional way to do the regulation, it's a process that features what's called notice and comment rulemaking. And that's one where the agency, and, and this is what the SEC has started uh, on the dealer front, but the agency goes out to the market and says, we're thinking about 
a rule here. We're thinking about filling this gap in the statutory framework. Tell us what you think. And that's a really important process because it allows stakeholders to explain what are the costs and the benefits of the SEC's proposed approach. It allows industry voice to be heard. It allows uh, you know, investors' voices to be heard beyond industry. It allows other states and regulators to weigh in. And, and as the Supreme Court has recognized, that's, that's ideal in many ways because it's a process for getting to you know, the best possible policy, recognizing that ultimately the SEC might pursue a path that, that we don't like. Um, but that notice and comment process also includes important checks. So if the SEC pursues a rule that, for example, where the costs substantially outweigh the benefits, or where the SEC doesn't have authority to issue the rule that it issues, or uh, the SEC's rule isn't clear, there's judicial review. So folks like AMA and other stakeholders can go to the courts and challenge the SEC's rulemaking and say, you have to go about the process properly, the outcome has to match the evidence, we have to be able to follow this rule. And I think the challenge for the SEC in going to Congress is persuading a majority of legislators. They haven't been able to do that, and we don't have evidence that they're likely to do that, I think. Um, the fact that they're not going through rulemaking, to me, suggests that they have another problem, that they recognize if they were to go through the rule, there are good reasons why it won't hold up in court after the fact. Uh, and we talk about this in our brief. I, I commend to everybody listening to go and read uh, the Keener amicus brief that we filed. Because I think that casts a, the failure to go to Congress or even do the notice and comment rulemaking really casts a shadow on these cases, that it, it does reflect, I think, the SEC reaching out and trying to get an outcome that it can't accomplish the more traditional and, I think, more proper ways. Uh, all the more reason why engaging in the courts and trying to make sure the judges know that uh, is really important for the industry. I'd also add that as it is with the, the circuit court cases, we do not believe that the SEC has the authority to expand the definition that it is attempting to use in the proposed dealer rule. Um, notably, the dealer rule proposal does not attempt to use the same expanded definition of who is a dealer, and it instead proposes qualitative and quantitative measures that also are absent in the definition under the Exchange Act. They're somewhat arbitrary, and they're equally troubling in that they would also capture a number of businesses that are not otherwise dealers. You, you preempted my uh, almost my final question perfectly there, which is just to bring up this point that there is a, a a live dealer rule proposal also working its way through, which does follow this much more well-trodden path of going through uh, industry feedback and, and, and is much more overt in the process. And, and, and as you exactly point out, does not include anything to do with redefining a dealer. So could you just um, walk us through at a, at a high level how this proposal interacts with what's going on in, in the various courts or, or are they just entirely separate? Uh, they are, maybe call them cousins. They are entirely separate in the sense that a win or a loss in the cases in the courts does not impact 
the rule, and the rule could go forward, or the SEC could attempt to move forward with it, regardless of what happens in the courts. Uh, but I call them cousins because the issues are, you know, in some ways similar. Uh, they are not the same. The rule covers, would propose to cover everybody, whereas the case in the court only technically covers the defendant in the case. Um, but I think it's, it's important to think about them as related because of the bigger picture here, and that is the SEC's broad efforts to redefine what it means to a dealer in a way that is different than what everyone has understood the, that term to mean for 90 years. Uh, and I think whether they're doing it through the courts, case by case, whether they're doing it through the rule, uh, industry needs to understand that this is a big deal, that there's liability that comes with it, uh, potentially, and that there are opportunities to shape the law and make sure that, uh, I guess as best we can, it doesn't end up in a scenario where lots of folks are ensnared with liability based on conduct they engaged in years ago when they thought it was entirely legal and based on the SEC's new view of the world, it turns out it was not legal. Um, when you're thinking about the notice and comment process, I'd also encourage folks to check out in the Keener brief, there's a section where we cite and we have a hyperlink to the AMA comment letter that was submitted in the SEC proposed rule. Uh, and there are some others and uh, maybe it's just me. I think they're good reading. I think they're persuasive. I think they really lay out the case for why what the SEC is trying to do on the regulatory front is improper and flawed the same way that uh, I think we lay out persuasively in the brief why what the SEC is trying to do in the courts is, is similarly invalid. So I think listeners will have got some insight here into all the various threads that make up this this quite broad story really and I struggled a little bit with, with framing this episode just in terms of trying to bring it together in, in as much a, of, a, of a coherent narrative as I could. So I'm just going to ask the complete cop-out question to close, which is just to, to ask, is there anything that I missed out? Is there anything when it comes to this case or what's at stake here um, that, I, that I should have asked you? And if you were to... Um, you know, be able to sit down your exact target audience and, and just make sure that they walked away from this with one clear fact, what would that be? So I, I think one other thought that I'd leave with folks is uh, really that we are working closely with AMA. We're looking at this issue strategically. We're looking at the big picture here, recognizing that there are all of these cases around the country. They're at different stages, at different in different places. There's the rule happening sort of in parallel. Uh, we're not looking at this as one case or one jurisdiction. What we're really trying to do is work hard to shape the law and have the outcome be as positive for industry as it can be. Uh, but that will take time and it will pay, take patience and it will take effort. I don't have much to add to that except to point out the fact, as I did with Al McGarvey, that even counsel who specialize in this type of legal, legal advocacy, SEC overreach in particular, have been unaware of all such cases. They're occurring outside the spotlight. Attempts at regulatory change like this need to have a bright light shining on them and certainly need to be open to public comment, as Gabi stated earlier. Here, here. 
Well, I think um, we we very clearly could go on for another hour, but uh, I, I think we will have to pause there, although I'm sure it is just for now. Uh, I think on, on behalf of, of everyone at AIMA, just to thank you, Gobby, and uh, and everyone at Jenner and Block that, that helped us out with this case. And of course, to you for, for coming on the long short and, and helping me and, and all of our listeners just understand exactly what's going on in this tangled web of a, of a regulatory story that's going on. Uh, finally, for anyone who does want uh, any of the further reading, the, the homework that was given to us all um, during the episode, that will all be in the show notes. And please keep an eye on um, Amos uh, website for any updates that will come along. We can't guarantee when those will be, as we've said, but um, we will certainly be across these, this case and several other cases, as well as the dealer proposal. Uh, and everything in between going forward. But thank you both very much for joining us on The Long Short. The Long Short was brought to you by AIMA, the Alternative Investment Management Association, the global representative for the alternative investment industry. As always, you can get the latest episodes by subscribing to The Long Short on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music, or by streaming episodes directly from our website, AIMA.org. Thanks for listening.